The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And the and the other thing is just kind of more putting in place more, I think, uh, civil society that is incentivized and uh, sometimes even required by by our laws. So I I talk about like the way that we have hacking and ethical hackers that are out there in the in the markets and in, in security, for example, in cybersecurity. I think there can be a role for organizations that are kind of in the nonprofit world that do much more of the kind of like hacking, but the work of getting bounties for identifying algorithmic bias and, you know, inaccuracies and identifying the gold standards and best practices of some companies in their automation. So, you know, and we need to fund all that. That costs money, but that that's the vision. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 17th, 2023. Artificial intelligence is advancing at what seems like an exponential rate, with every month, sometimes every week, bringing news of a new, game-changing discovery. But just as the progress in AI is accelerating, so is the pessimism about it with many scholars, commentators, and technologists themselves raising the alarm about AI's potential harms to equality, privacy, and security. Challenging this consensus is Orly Lobel, a law professor at the University of San Diego and the author of the new book, The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. I spoke with Orly about her book, why she's optimistic about AI's potential to advance equality, and what the government can do to help. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 17th. Orly Lobel on how AI can make the world a better, more equal place. So Orly, I'd love to start just by having you give an overview of the book and sort of the main point that you're trying to get across in it. Sure. So the equality machine is described as a counter narrative and even contrarian. And I find it a little funny to be called contrarian in 2023 by taking a positive vision and a blueprint of a way forward now that we're automating, we're using digital technology in all aspects of our lives. But really, it it was part of the motivation of the book to show us that the debates we are having are too either utopian or dystopian, too narrow. And there's a lot of rich insight when you actually look at different fields from health to care, from education to the workplace, of how we can actually tackle some of the most difficult challenges that are posed right now to us, you know, to our society, uh, including quality, but also fairness and justice and distributive justice around the world, global, you know, problems like climate change and poverty, by actually scaling AI and automation and and creating best practices there. So there, there's a lot in there, and and I have a bunch of questions. So I guess I'll just I'll just ask them in in some order. So one thing that you mentioned in your answer, and you mention it in in the book a lot, is this utopian dystopian split. And I was hoping you could just say more about that um, because I've noticed it too. You know, wh- what is the nature of this kind of binary thinking, and and what do you think is the big uh, way that is holding productive debates about AI back. Right. So it's both dystopian and utopian. And I will also say, and it's also something that I develop in the book, 
outside and inside, kind of who are the outsiders and who are the who's involved in creating the technology and who is kind of the critics from from without. I think that some of it is a human tendency that we kind of flatten debates by having kind of this easier stance of being critical um, of the kind of behavioral insight that losses loom larger than gains. Um, we, you know, we're, we're in general um, kind of risk averse, uh, wanting the status quo, um, but we also have optimism bias. So there's, you know, a lot of kind of competing tensions there. But I see all of these kind of behavioral, as a behavioral researcher, fallacies and irrationalities that happen in our debates. So uh, there's also kind of like a, a tra trajectory or a timeline where I, I suggest that maybe the current criticism and dystopian kind of overfear of AI and technology might be kind of an overcorrection from for you know, two decades ago where we thought technology is kind of the what will save us all um, and there's much more optimism. So I think that there's kind of like a real struggle and for me it's really a real goal to to keep balance to to hold both ideas at the same time and to have what I call skin in the game of yes you see the problems with the system, but you're also in it and and trying to improve it. And you know, I actually, I'll say one more thing that I think that in general, in scholarship and kind of legal research, you see a lot of this kind of easier to be a critic rather than offering constructive changes. Like you know, this kind of this idea that that would be cooptation and you know, uh, cosmetic. So. I actually think that that's been a guiding light for me throughout my uh, research career to say, yes, even when we see the problems, you know, we have no choice but to, you know, try to better the system. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I want to kind of pull out one part of what you just said was this idea of having skin in a game as, as a way of avoiding either utopianism or dystopianism. And, and you know, you write in your book very eloquently about your own personal connection to some of these issues, particularly with your daughter who developed diabetes and, and has benefited enormously from, you know, smart insulin devices and, and you know, the future of that will make the, uh, the care even better. I mean, I'm curious, how, 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 other than sort of the kind of personal experience, how, how do you make sure that you're kind of always tacking between these two extremes? And is it just, is it a matter, I think, of kind of psychological temperament of just not getting carried away one way or the other? Or is it a matter of just getting really into the details on every particular issue so that you're really grounded in facts rather than sort of high theory? Because it's something that I really appreciated in the book. And I kind of want to know, as Tyler Cowen would say, what is your production function, right, when it comes to <laughs> being able to have that really admirable balance? Right, right. I think what you said about actually focusing on the facts is really important in the equality machine. So that's really what I sought to do, um, where I wanted to go to each realm of our lives, whether it's health or what's happening with hiring apps and automating uh, questions about pay and you know tackling the the gender and racial pay gaps or um, looking at online content moderation, you know, something that we're thinking about a lot right now. And and I do have also personal experience with a lot of these. Um, I, I write about these issues of platform regulation. I also serve as a, an academic uh, advisor to a publicly traded platform, Fiverr, uh, that does uh, trust and safety and content moderation. So I have kind of these on the ground insights, and I want to relate them to the theory, but I really wanted in each one of these discussions of like, should we allow self-driving cars to already be on the roads or should we transfer or, or kind of shift from um, human physicians to algorithms that screen for mammograms? I wanted to really research, you know, how, what they're doing and how we think about it and, and illuminate those gaps between so one of the the big gaps is uh, between how I think we should be thinking about things and building and providing a blueprint for regulating these technological developments and what's happening in in public debates is that we don't use enough sometimes not at all a comparative lens so we have this double standard for 
algorithms and humans or the status quo and you know the the automated processes we we expect perfection and not advantage from these new systems and that is simply harmful it's it's not only harmful harmful in general ironically and perversely it's harmful to the people that most needed uh, the most vulnerable the kind of uh, what, what i also want to resist all the time is these assumptions distributional assumptions that are out there flowing a lot because you know there's so much conversation about ai is biased and ai replicates you know human um discrimination and for me it's really important to show yeah sometimes and some designs but there are lots of ways to make it more accurate more consistent more fair and more equitable and there is a cost that we have to consider of not adopting certain technologies that are outperforming human decision making not just the cost of you know the the imperfections when we do adopt them so so that's kind of the the ideas that i constantly want to hold as kind of the the theoretical principles and then look at how they can be applied deployed uh, thought about in concrete matters so i just want to ask one more question about this issue of sort of what kind of emotional valence or psychological valence we ought to take to this discussion because you know i i think one could agree with everything you're saying and say on the merits we have kind of over indexed on the negatives of ai but nevertheless it still makes more sense for academics, journalists, commentators, you know, to focus on that because in the kind of broader political economy, the the companies and those behind the AI are so powerful that unless someone outside those companies focuses on the dangers, they're just going to run roughshod over, you know, let's say Congress or regulation. You know, I'm just thinking we're recording this on on uh, on Tuesday afternoon and you know earlier today OpenAI announced the release of uh, GPT-4, the new generation of its chatbot. Uh, it turns out that Microsoft uh, has been using it all along in its uh, uh, search engine. And, and, you know, everyone is super excited about this and it has billions of dollars of funding and it has one of the biggest tech companies behind it. And one could look at that and say, look, you know, it, 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 may, it may have a lot of benefits and those benefits, OpenAI and Microsoft are well capable of pushing, you know, it's the rest of our job to, to point out the flaws. And I'm sort of curious what you think about that kind of second order response to your, I don't want to call it optimism, but balanced approach, let's say. Yeah, no, I, I certainly hear you on all of that. And I think a lot of times it's an empirical question of like, you know, what is the right uh, mix of how we look at questions uh, from like as policymakers or reporters, um, you know, I've been, because I've been on tour now with the Equality Machine, I'm talking about the book to a lot of uh, reporters, journalists. I actually pose this question to them of, you know, why do you only report when something goes wrong? And, and you know, some of it may be that, you know, they see their role as pointing to and and it's a very it's such a you know important role i it's it's a such a noble profession to actually you know go against the goliaths and be the david that really kind of points to the 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 flaws but a lot of it is sensationalism and it's uh kind of one one reporter told me you know my editor just you know goes by it bleeds it reads right so that that piece I'm really resistant resisting and 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 I think it has really harmful effects of what what I mentioned before the skin in the game idea I think that we see this vicious cycle of if we're only talking about the problems kind of as like the public discourse yes there's tech companies but they're like nobody believes them anymore there's like a real tech clash going on and then we we as like the media and government, like, you know, Biden's AI Bill of Rights and all of these kind of uh, documents that are out there, if we're, we're just pointing to the flaws, then we're creating this vicious cycle of the people that we actually really want to go to Silicon Valley and to be engineers and to, to do STEM are, are just less likely that, you know, they're kind of opting out and we see 
is kind of fear um, of joining the system and, and correcting it. And also even more broadly, just fear, a lot of irrational fears of in the kind of as consumers, as patients, as um, employees of, of, as citizens of kind of being in that conversation and using technologies in the right way. So like, uh, I'll give you one example of like, how we how salient it is for parents um, to think about like the dangers of technology and not enough kind of focus on how we can use the right technology like ro social robots introduce them into schools in especially in you know vulnerable communities that don't have the resources of the the great teachers and the great teacher ra student ratio that we we don't focus as a, as a country on digital literacy as much as we need to, because we were kind of all the time with this story of let's point to the flaws, let's log off, let's disconnect. That's those are the kinds of risks that I I very much want to avoid. So I want to get into sort of the the core argument of the book. And one question I had, which I, I was really curious about, was your choice of framing. So the book is called The Equality Machine. And it occurred to me as I was reading the book that there could have been other things you could have called it, right? Other paths you could have taken the book. You could have called it the prosperity machine, the knowledge machine, you know, the insert blank good thing machine. And so I, I'm curious before we get into how AI can improve equality, why did you think that was the most important thing to devote this book to rather than all the other things that AI will have an effect on? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I thought about titles and focus a lot. And I think that the first thing that is always kind of in the, on the critic side is, and there are titles of this, like it's about how we're automating inequality, about how there's algorithmic bias, how um, not only is AI skewed and, and biased and produces bad results for, you know, different identity groups, but also just the the very fact that we are digitizing, that we're collecting more data, more, you know, information about everybody is in and of itself kind of a, creates more of a risk to the more vulnerable. Uh, kind of, again, this assumption that we are in a, we're moving into a surveillance capitalism, you know, again, I'm kind of using the titles of, you know, a lot of the books that are kind of on that camp, but that it's not equally distributed, that the more we collect data, uh, the more people who are have been traditionally excluded will continue to be excluded or discriminated against. And that simply, and on all fronts, and I, I do a lot of work in the book and, you know, in all of the, like, from, you know, sex tech to our, our market, uh, labor market, I, I do a lot of kind of research on whether that is correct, you know, again, sometimes that can be correct, but there's been a lot of, there are a lot of reasons to question those assumptions. And there's been a lot of developments where we can really create these equality machines. Where So one example is hiring algorithms that are just like John Oliver last week did like this whole thing about AI. And he rehashed the same story that I keep seeing. I mean, part of my research was kind of to to find that the the same story, both in the scholarly writing and in the media writing and in like FTC reports, the same story that's like maybe 10 years old now or same couple of stories about how like Amazon didn't succeed in its first try in creating a hiring app uh, or hiring like automated process because it just replicated the past biased, you know, decision-making of humans. And it turned out that the algorithm was just spitting out like, yeah, just hire, you know, white men. Well, it was actually better than that. And this is, this is the example I was going to use. It was J Jared. Jared's who play lacrosse, who play I think lacrosse. was the example. Yeah, yeah, it's such yeah. a fabulous example. Yeah. And, and so everybody knows that example, but very few know that a, it was never deployed. That that algorithm was never deployed. Amazon, unlike our human black box, Amazon was able to test this algorithmic black box. And so there's actually, you know, unlike the public conversations that we're having, there's actually a reason to suggest that 
we have actually more transparency and more of kind of that digital paper trail to audit when we're shifting to automated decision-making. Again, this is really important to me as somebody who I'm the director of the Center for Employment and Labor Policy here, and I teach employment discrimination. I've been teaching it for two decades. I am an expert witness in multiple discrimination cases, and I see how difficult it is to actually reverse engineer why us humans have made decisions, but algorithms actually can you know we can do that and we can improve it them and you know by by very their very definition you know machine learning machines learn and and we can direct and design them to check we on you know, whether there are disparities in the outcomes that or the outputs that they recommend so you know all of this to me has meant that you know we really need to understand those like developments that have happened and not kind of be fixated on the same story. I'll just mention kind of the other story. So I always see like the same story. Again, the John Oliver did had it all. Like two stories are always out there. It's one is the Amazon hiring algorithm. And the second is uh, facial recognition being skewed to recognizing better white male faces. So you know what what i want to do is to ask okay what how can we improve that what is the source of the problem you know what are the trade offs what are the normative trade offs that always have existed in you know all our our systems and just be explicit about like what is actually out there and what can be possible so staying on the theme that i really appreciate you emphasizing which is that we seem to uh, really underestimate our own biases and overestimate AI biases, right? We're, we're bad at this kind of comparative thinking. I, I'm curious if you have a sense of, of why that is, because it does seem like such a durable part of this conversation. And, and it also is one reason why I wonder if, you know, it will always struggle to, to implement AI to its most productive margin, because, you know, th- there's always going to be a, a temptation or a desire to keep humans in the loop. Um, and I just wonder if if you think that we'll ever be able to get over that, or or if that's always going to be something we're struggling with when you know whether it's employment algorithms or driverless cars or 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 when our robot overlords finally take over in two decades, <laughs> where does that psychological uh, temptation uh, come from, and, and how can we get over it? Where and when it's appropriate to get over? These are really great great questions that I think are really at the frontier of what we should be asking right now and what policymakers should be thinking about. I've actually argued I, I have a, a new article that's called The Law of AI for Good, which actually, you know, you asked me about the title, The Equality Machine, which focuses on equality, but also just, you know, social good in general and global justice. Um, but but with the Law of AI for Good, I, 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 you know, really just kind of accept that we need to think about all these questions of doing good um, and well-being in general. But in that in that article, I argue that our next frontier of research should be just like behavioral law and economics, you know, was 20 years or more late in the game compared to marketing departments that looked at behavioral research just kind of to help profit and businesses do better in leveraging, manipulating, whatever you want to call it, consumers and their decision making. And then, you know, we understood that really the design of like choice architecture, policies, um, all kinds of decisions that we make as communities need to be, you know, we need to be thoughtful of how we have, you know, some uh, psychological limits, we have cognitive failures and and we need to understand those better to to create more rationality i think that like the arm the the next arm of that line of research will absolutely be human machine interaction and creating the right kind of trust not over trust and not under trust not uh what the literature is is calling now um algorithmic adoration and not algorithmic aversion but again really kind of thinking rationally about what is safe. Um, And so to your question, first of all, you know, once we know more about how, you know, where we have failures, why we have failures, and I try to do a lot of that in the book, like 
thinking about why Japanese culture and Korean culture is more comfortable with um, humanoid robots entering your home versus here in the West where we have um, kind of the Hollywood image of, of um, our overlords, as you said, killing us. Or I, I look a lot at, at research that asks about whether we should we should create kind of tangible, you know, robots to match up to our systems, our disembodied AI systems to create more of the, that right level of trust. I think that it's incorrect to say that we will never, you know, and, and even now have not in any field, you know, become comfortable with completely taking the human out of the loop. So the earliest example, I think the most uh, kind of the strongest example where we have completely as a global society been really kind of in agreement and are comfortable with taking humans completely out of the loop is, is it commercial aviation? So, you know, in LA, we have one computer that is actually the worldwide computer that when in, in the riskiest situations, when there's, you know, difficult weather conditions, there's a absolute mandate for all planes all around the world that the pilot has no control over the, you know, the, the autopilot that's doing the landing. And, and that's just, you know, that's safety that, that has created, you know, such a flourishing of commercial aviation. At the same time, I don't know that we think about that when we're like when there's weather, um, and I talk about this, I, I'm actually critical of some of the EU solutions, some of the California solutions and bills before Congress that say that, you know, one of the most important things is that to have like transparency, when is a system automated versus when is a system, you know, just, uh, you know when there's uh, a human in the loop. And there's kind of these suggestions in the policy that, you need to be as a consumer, as a patient, as a passenger, like constantly like pinged and told that, you know, right now, just so you know, there's no control. And and I kind of, I laugh that, you know, what if we would have been doing that with air travel where every time the pilot has no control, they're like, just so you know, the weather is so bad that I am giving up, you know, all control. I'm not in the loop. That I think that would be like that would backfire. That would be counterproductive. So again, I think we need to create research-based policy that that really kind of brings us to that place of of the better kind of trust. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I want to talk about sort of the role of the law and regulation. But before I do that, I, I want to sort of stay a little bit on the subject-specific areas for a second. And, you know, this is Lawfare. We're a security-oriented podcast and, uh, and website. And those are not the topics you necessarily get into so much into the book. But I, I suspect you have thoughts about some of the more, you know, controversial uses of AI. And the, the first uh, domain I, I want to ask you about is the role of AI in security. Right. Defined broadly, whether it's policing or national security, um, you know, obviously, I know you have a personal background sort of in, in those areas, just you know, from, from your work in the, in the Israeli military. And so I'm sure you've thought about the potential that AI has, because, of course, when we're talking about places to take people out of the loop, 
um, those are areas where you have potentially the best results, but also the most worry. And, and so I'm just curious whether you think or whether you're as confident that AI can have this beneficial equality effect in those areas uh, as well. Look, that first of all, you know, it's always humans that are designing the technology itself and the normative tensions between security and other values that we have as a society on the one hand they're not going away with the introduction of technology but and you know on the other hand or the same hand they've always been there so right so they're like this is actually something that I care about a lot in the equality machine where I kind of stress that it's not the technology that is introducing the hard questions. You know, we've always had hard questions as democratic societies of like, what is the right balance between security and freedom, between privacy and and speech, between equality and accuracy or kind of individual tailorism, you know, all the all the different values that we want to promote in society, there there's gonna be hard questions. I want to think about technology as as a way to mitigate some of these tensions and help alleviate some of the kind of inevitable clashes. But I think that when you ask me about security, you know, there's, again, I think that this is something that different democracies and certainly not non-democracies will reach, you know, different balances on. But we have to look at, you know, what the technology is also, actually enabling. So actually this week there's a the the Yale Journal of Regulation journal is holding a symposium um on the equality machine and one of the commentators uh is Elena Chachko who wrote a a wonderful kind of review of the book and and she focuses on this question of national security and how automated content moderation done by private platforms have become such a frontier in the governance of, you know, security decisions um, of like who gets on terrorist lists and, you know, who's uh, monitored, who's blocked, roles that have traditionally been the roles of, of government. So, you know, that is happening and we need to ask, you know, what, what are the efficiencies that are happening there? I think, Chachko has actually argued that in an, an interesting way, the the concentration of the tech markets has actually enabled much more of that security work versus, um, you know, there's other competing values of, of trying to um, make these markets more competitive and, and, you know, less, you know, dominated by just a few category kings. So, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, as you mentioned, I uh, I start the book actually with describing how my first career was in the Israeli Defense Forces as an intelligence commander, as a data analyst. Um, I saw the power of technology to do a lot of good and a lot of you know problematic things. But I think you know we are there. It it actually relates to you know similar debates that we're having now before the Supreme Court about content moderation and um, the Gonzalez case. And and what I think, I'll say one more thing. I think what I'm arguing and showing the book is that certainly what is not the right way to debate these issues is to think in black and white or on-off kind of ban or automate uh, ways. Like in the question of content moderation, there's so many ways to create best practices that will kind of up the way that privacy and free speech are handled and at the same time create more, you know, effective results on actually identifying risk. So what, one thing you, you mentioned in, in your answer just now, and it's something that also goes through your book, and I found it kind of striking and important, but also something I want to push back a little bit on or just ask you about, is this framing that you return to that, look, AI is a tool. And what matters is how that tool is used and by whom. And in one sense, that's absolutely correct, right? AI is not, at least not yet, uh, you know, sentient and self-modifying and we'll see, right? But at the moment, that's not the problem. And yet at the same time, and this is to me kind of the lesson of 
the sort of so, social study of the sciences, um, right, science and technology studies in the 20th century, is that, you know, these technologies, they may just be tools, but they're not neutral tools in the sense that they, they the affordances that they offer can push us uh, into one direction. They have, they have tendencies. And, you know, I, I'm curious, even if only just to kind of be a devil's advocate against your own optimism, even if you're right, AI can be used for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of ways. Do you think that there are tendencies, temptations that AI naturally presents that do worry you, that we do have to be especially on guard against? Because I, I would suspect that 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 is something that folks hearing the sort of, it's just a tool, it's okay, um, what, what might might worry about? Yeah, I think uh, it, it depends on the context. You know, we, we tend to think that, and, and we're having these conversations right now, as, as you said, with G- GPT and um, with just being online so much, there is this idea that a lot of our own capabilities are being annihilated in some ways. That's kind of, and it kind of creates that vicious cycle. Um, I, I think that in general, technology has always had the power to to shift work and work lives and kind of the way that we interact in all sorts of ways. Like, I would want to hear more about what you think of, you know, what what is the built-in tendencies in, in a particular context? So some of the things that are conventional wisdoms about, you know, that built-in tendency, I definitely try to resist in the book. So for example, this idea that if we are more online, we become less connected, we become less uh, kind of interactive with one another. I, again, I think that the research is, is not supporting that. I talk about like care robots that have been FDA approved. And this is actually really not very known uh, in our society that the FDA based on, you know, strong evidence from the research has actually approved like uh, social robots uh, that are seals, friendly seals to be introduced as a care device into homes um, and and like elderly care. And you see how the patients actually become more interactive with their caretaker and with amongst themselves when there's actually a technology and like an AI that is within them. Um, so it's, again, like the surprising counter narrative to, oh, we're just going to be all isolated because we're all online, we're all, you know, just interacting with robots. Similar studies uh, and and insights uh, I I explore in the context of schools and education. I I absolutely accept that, you know, some of the, definitely the design of technology and, um, you know, some context of technology will have this kind of path dependency that is maybe worrisome, but we need to talk about it. And we need to, you know, like we need to, to be concrete about it. Like, like we started when you, you asked, you know, is it just, you know, going to the actual, you know, empirics and, and the context, I think that's really important. Okay. So I want to now talk about the, the law's potential role here and, and how the law can shape AI to be in the direction of equality rather than the direction of, of, you know, something, something else, something worse. And one question I have just as a threshold matter is, whether the law has any hope of keeping up. I mean, if you just look at, I mean, I keep using ChatGPT because it's sort of the, the AI du jour. It's increasing in complexity, sophistication at almost an exponential rate. I mean, it's just blowing everything out of the water. Whereas law in the best of circumstances, and our political system is not the best of circumstances, <laughs> right, moves incredibly slowly. And, you know, while while I can imagine the law reacting in the sense of maybe not providing certain protections that it did before. And here I'm thinking, uh, since you mentioned the Gonzalez case from, uh, you know, from a few weeks back, Justice Gorsuch's musings at oral argument that Section 230 probably wouldn't protect something like ChatGPT. You know, putting stuff like that aside, I mean, do you have much optimism that Congress or even a federal agency is really going to be able to act quickly and comprehensively and in a technologically sophisticated enough way to, you know, deal with, AI, given just how quickly it is evolving? Yeah. So first, I agree with the way that you describe it, that we, even though we've always had this lag of regulators and the legislator 
in responding to new business models, to new technologies, to industrialization. Right now, we're having like a a qualitatively different transition that is happening and what what is possible and what is, you know, the way that our technologies are evolving. And so it's a challenge. It's certainly a, a big challenge. But I think that one is that, you know, we really need to do much more. It means that, that we, we need to invest much more in the right governance systems um, in the, so, you know, invest a lot in skill and expertise that are also in government and kind of matching up. Maybe, you know, it will never, government will never match up to industry, but it needs to at least, you know, have much better systems of procurement and, you know, full departments that are focused on automated systems. Uh, I'm actually writing an article about this uh, with Carrie Kuglielizzi from Penn. And we actually, like, you know, one of the findings in the, the, the recent literature is that it's shocking how few uh, automated systems um, have been introduced in the work of law enforcement and government. We hear we hear about like the controversial ones, right? Like that the just criminal justice system has algorithms and sentencing, and there's you know critique there that I again I, I try to unpack in the in the book. But really, when you look at how much could have been done with auditing and, and using compliance and um, enforcement that is done by, or like recommendations about enforcement and compliance by machine learning, there's, it's, we're very, very lagged behind. There's one study that recently came out that looked at OSHA and, and health and safety inspections and what it would have looked like if the agency would, would have used in the past decade machine learning the the savings both in money and in terms of disease and injury accidents lives would be just tremendous it's like we're talking about billions of dollars um, for the industry and so we really need to like <laughs> take a close look and again i, I mean it, this is all in kind of that background of what what i fear that we're creating so much focus on the safeguards and not you know, recognizing the the need to accelerate sometimes, uh, you know, the, the adoption of technology, and the and the other thing is just kind of more putting in place more. I think a civil society that is incentivized and uh, sometimes even required by by our laws. So I I talk about like the way that we have hacking and ethical hackers that are out there in the in the markets and in security, for example, in cybersecurity, I think there can be a role for organizations that are kind of in the nonprofit world that do much more of the kind of like hacking, but the work of getting bounties for identifying algorithmic bias and, you know, inaccuracies and identifying the gold standards and best practices of some companies in their automation. So, you know, and we need to fund all that. That costs money, but that that's the vision. Yeah. yeah and that last example, I mean, is is that the sort of public-private partnership that you call for? And just to give a little context, right, it seems pretty clear and I, that, you know, uh, top-down regulation of the sort that applies to, you know, the manufacture of widgets is not going to work, frankly, particularly well. And something that I know you started your career as a, a researcher thinking about, and this is actually how I came to read your work, you know, way back when, was your really innovative thinking about new models of regulation, including things like public-private public private models, and something you mentioned also in the book. And I'm sort of curious if you can just give me some more examples of, of what this sort of more responsive regulation, right, to use a term um, in the literature, would look like uh, in the context of AI. Right. And the other terms, so there's responsive regulation, there's a... Uh public private partnership we we also call it new governance and again yes uh, exactly like you say not command and control uh, but kind of more of a a pyramid of regulation where like most of the time we can incentivize part, private ordering and and you know allow systems to to self audit and and improve and and then kind of bring bring in the big guns in in more targeted ways 
I think that all applies to our current questions about automation and and digital technology. So um, I gave, you know, the one example of bias bounties. In the book, I look at a lot of these personal digital assistants, even before GPT, and how the defaults had been originally quite sexist. You know, they were gendered in name and voice, uh, speech-to-text, and text-to-speech was... um, skewed in the sense of not not really being as accurate for a lot of consumers around the world just you know like the the more powerful mainstream you know american consumer and i think i envision that there are things that can be corrected by funding more as i mentioned civil society that does the kind of work of looking at data as a public resource rather than, you know, all the data being concentrated and controlled by just a few for-profit tech companies. That would be like a system. So that would be actually a policy. And I think about it as a governance policy where like the law creates the, the system in which there's more access to using the power of AI and the power of data by in in more democratic ways by not just the the big few but also you know a lot of groups that can innovate that can expand that can scale into like you know much needed areas that that are about social justice and you know creating more more accessibility and 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 access in general for for a lot of communities so i want to end this discussion actually where you end the book which is with two figures, uh, Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, and um, Timnit Gebru, uh, this the AI researcher who was fired by Google after a dispute over what she could publish. How much, you know, given given these these two incidents, and I, I think it's fair to say that you are on the side of both Haugen and Gebru uh, in in both of these situations. You know, given these incidents and incidents like them, how much confidence do you have that you know these the big companies or the upstarts like OpenAI? will or even can make the right decisions in this space, right? Where we'll take your framing right here is the pro-equality decision. Yeah. And it's funny to me to to kind of think about like what side I'm on. I very much appreciate the role of whistleblowers in general and the role of whistleblowing in the tech world in particular with my co-author Yuval Feldman um, from Bar-Ilan University, I have a series of studies about how to incentivize social enforcement and, and reporting, and, you know, like uh, insiders becoming whistleblowers and, outs- you know, just uh, showing us as the public the things that have gone wrong in in corporate America. And so I appreciate a lot of I definitely, you know, I I definitely support that and and want that and want to, you know, protect um, that kind of speech. But I also, uh, in in the as you saw in the end of the equality machine, I I have some ambivalence about the message about specifically with Timnit Gebru, where she calls out to all the people who are working in um, Google Ethics, um, you know, in the ethics departments. And says, like, just don't bother. Like, it's all cosmetic. It's all going to be co-opted. You're just, like, you know, going to be in service of just a sham. And with that, I don't agree. Like, I actually think that there, you know, corporations are not monolithic. There is a strong profit motivation that we should be very cognizant of. Uh, I mean, it, this is how capitalism works, uh, and you know that's 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 okay. But we should be, you know, have all you know, kind of the systems in place to to also from the outside to check on that. But I think that there's also really important work that's being done from the inside. I mentioned that I work with. Fiverr as a platform on their content moderation. I think that they're quite representative with many of these other major platforms where they actually really do want to be responsible, ethical, um, in certainly in content moderation. Nobody joins, not nobody, but like most people don't join a company like Google 
or Facebook to say, oh, I'm going to destroy democracy and, uh, you know, uh, create all these harms. I think, I mean, th this is part of my optimism that I think most people actually do want to do good while they're also doing well. Um, and so I think we need both. I think we constantly need both from the inside and the outside. And it, it does kind of uh, close the circle of where we started our conversation about the equality machine of, you know, we want skin in the game and that can look like, you know, can be different things for different people, but it should also be that the people who are designing the, our systems in government and in the private market should be reflective of all of us, um, should have multiple backgrounds and educational, you know, worlds. Uh, so it shouldn't only be engineers. It, you know, I, I actually really like that these companies are hiring psychologists and ethicists, you know, philosophers, um, economists and sociologists, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's how the story of of human progress happens. That's uh, again, not, not to sound, you know, too optimistic. Um, <laughs> but, but in a lot of ways, like what's, you know, what's the alternative and this is what, where we are at. So my greatest hope is that, you know, we will all have kind of this engaged and quite rational, you know, as rationalism, we can, we can be conversation of what is possible and what do we really fear. Well, I, I always like to end on an optimistic note, if I can. And I, for one, am very grateful that we have folks like you helping us think through these problems and these opportunities. So thank you so much, Early. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osbound of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.